Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, we're in a series entitled Build, and we're considering Jesus' words from Matthew 16 that say, I will build my church. And we spent the last four weeks talking about four core values of our church and how it is that those core values help us as pillars of our church to raise the foundational truth of the gospel where people can connect with God and one another and come into a relationship with God through the gospel in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to follow up with that because if Jesus said, I will build my church, I want us to give consideration and some time to who it is that has made this promise? Who is the God that is building this church? And how is it that we respond correctly to him? And so that brings us this morning to our topic. And I want to talk to you about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity and how God has revealed himself throughout history that we might know him and why that matters for us. Now, a study of the Trinity typically revolves around three questions, and it's basically this. Number one, is it biblical? It's always good to start there when you're doing study in the Christian life. Number two, is it logical? Does it make sense? And number three, does it matter? Is it relevant? And so since these are typically questions that form a study like this, I thought, I'll make it the outline for my sermon. That way it's one less decision I have to make this week. And so that's how we're going to flow through today. I say that because I'm going to lay down a number of things for you in the first two-thirds of the sermon. And then at the end of the sermon, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk mostly about why it's relevant, why it's so important for us today. And then the other two sermons that I preach on the Trinity will be directly addressing that question. Why is it important for us today? Here's what I want you to walk away with today. God reveals his triune nature that we might know the glory of his oneness in communion with him. God reveals his triune nature that we might know the glory of oneness in communion with him. So let's look first of all at this first question. What, what is the doctrine of the Trinity and is it biblical? Well, let me give you a little historical background on how it arose it arose in the 4th century as the church was seeking to make sense of their practices in worship. In other words, since the time Jesus walked on the earth in the 1st century, the church had already been practicing what we would consider a triune uh, uh, expression of worship. But as their, as their worship developed, they sought greater understanding because there were some conflicts that seemed to arise. And so in the midst of this conflict, a man by the name of Arius came forward and said, you know, here's really what we need to be doing. And he made some statements about who Jesus was, that Jesus was in some way less than being fully God, wasn't completely God. And that opposed what had been taking place for the first 300 years of Christianity since the time Jesus walked on the earth. And so the leaders of the church called together what they call a council. 
It's when key leaders of, of the Christian world at that time were called together. We see the first council in Acts chapter 15, known as the Jerusalem Council. But when conflicts arose in the church, this is one of the ways that they strove to operate in unity in order to uh, bring some kind of definition or clarity among meaning and what they believed. This council, though, was called the Council of Nicaea because it met in the city of Nicaea. And Arius represented what he was purporting, which was really in opposition or at least in stark contrast to what had been believed and practiced. And a man by the name of Alexander, who was also a leader in the church, represented the sitting doctrine or the teaching of the church. Well, the council, they had their words, and basically what came out of the Council of Nicaea is that Arius and his cronies were excommunicated from the church. They were kicked out, condemned. So that's a biblical practice. We see that, right? But it's because they were denying some fundamental truths of the gospel, as we will see today. And Alexander and the other leaders at that time clarified for us what still holds true today in our doctrine of the Trinity that is articulated in the Nicene Creed. Now, if you know the creeds, are familiar with them, or follow them, you'll know that later in the next early part of the 5th century, uh, the Nicene Creed, or late 4th century, early 5th century, the Nicene Creed had a couple of phrases added for clarity. But I want to share this with you today because I, it's important for us to understand historically how God has revealed himself to define the one that we call God today, whom we worship. So let me read the Nicene Creed for you. It's not very long. But listen to how it identifies each person of the Trinity and then states our belief about them. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now I want to remind you of this. The practices of the early church in how they expressed their worship and their belief in God was already fully Trinitarian. 
They were recognizing God the Father. They were recognizing Jesus as God and the Holy Spirit. We see this taught throughout the New Testament as we'll look at in a moment, but we see it explicitly in the life of the apostles and their teaching as they talk about and teach on the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And so 300 or really 200 plus years later, as we come to this uh, time and we see this conflict arise, it arises at such a time not to introduce something new, but to clarify something that was being challenged in the way that we taught it and what we understood it to mean. Now, let's fast forward to September the 23rd, 2018, and let me uh, share with you some of my own plans for this morning. My aim, number one, is not to explain the Trinity, and I have a very specific reason why. Because some of you might ask, why wouldn't you explain it to us? Well, five words that tell you why. Self-awareness of my own self that leads to self-preservation. And here's why. It is commonly said that everyone throughout history who has tried to explain the Trinity ended up branded a heretic. (laughs) I don't care to wear that label. And so out of my own self-awareness that I'm not the guy that's going to answer what's been not able to have been answered for 2,000 years now, I'm going to desire to remain among the church and not be excommunicated out of the church. I do. That's my prayer every week. But specifically, when you read that from people much more brilliant than you, you don't go, you know what? I'm going to change history today. Um, Let's just stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before and watch God do what God is doing today as he reveals himself. Actually, when we look at the Bible, Scripture doesn't teach this doctrine to satisfy our curiosity. Not even Jesus goes to great lengths to explain the Trinity. Rather, he teaches just enough about the triune nature of God to increase our astonishment of him and our awe in worship of him. And how powerful that is. The Bible also uses no analogies. So if you've been in church before and you've heard analogies used for the Trinity, I just want to warn you. I'll go back to that five-word statement of self-awareness that leads to self-preservation. Every analogy that has been used to explain the Trinity very quickly, usually about the first minute of explanation, breaks down and leads in an errored direction of what the Trinity is really all about. So there will be no fun analogies or science experiments that demonstrate the Trinity for you today. That's good. That way, because when I was in the science lab in junior high, I had more of a tendency to blow things up and catch them on fire. So there's no need for that in here. Rather, here's what scripture does with the doctrine of the Trinity. It introduces God in a revelation that is progressive in our understanding of him through which we come to understand of him the fullness of his nature as a Trinitarian God or a three-in-one God. And so my choice today in sermons is to choose to stand on the shoulders of those much wiser, much more brilliant who have gone before and to share with you today. What I do want to accomplish in these sermons, though, is this. I want to raise the awareness, and to strengthen our awe of our triune God. 
for our worship, for our service, for our community, and for our mission as a church. And so let me share with you very succinctly just three simple statements that sets forth the doctrine of the Trinity. I didn't write these. These are uh, set forth throughout history. But number one, there is one God. So we see the oneness of God in the beginning. Number two, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number three, each person is fully God. Now, why do I begin this way? Because I want you to have some historical framework that has taken place that brings us to where we are today and links our faith today, not just to the moment, but to the history of all that God has done for humans in salvation. And so that leads us to the next question. What do we need to know about the Trinity? And that's where I'll point you back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Let's look then at God's revelation through time and see how he progressively unveiled himself that we might know him in increasing measure and manner and worship him as such. He begins this way, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Some scholars say that's the first creed of the whole scriptures. Because this is the central truth around which all Hebrew worship of the Old Testament age centered. It's called the Shema Israel, and it's one that Jesus affirms in Matthew 22. We've already talked about it over the last four weeks, but the reason it's called Shema is because that's the Hebrew word for hear that begins that verse, hear, O Israel. And it is God speaking to his people to say, listen up, I'm about to say something really important to you. And what he says is this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now why would he say that? He begins with the oneness of God. This is the first and the prevailing revelation of God throughout the Old Testament. The center of life for all those who believed in the God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, up until the time of Jesus Christ's birth. Why would he say that? Because he's speaking into history to reveal himself to people, not only for history, for all eternity, but to show and to demonstrate his glory as superior, even to the day and the time and the beliefs in which they live. And who was he speaking to? But he was speaking to a people who lived in an age that had a God for everything and worshiped a God for everything. And against this backdrop, our God who is one dared to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, God saying to his people, there is not a God for everything and everything is not a God. I am God and I alone am God and everything else that is called God neither compares to me nor excels beyond me. He's calling them to a singular devotion to himself for all things, not just one thing. Because in that day and time, they would worship this God for this area of life and this God for this area. And the gods were not only numbered greatly, but into the hundreds and the thousands. 
He's confronting polytheism, the worship of many gods, and pantheism, the worship of everything as God. And in the midst of that, he is saying, I am God. Worship me in all things, for all things, at all times, alone as God. That's why God introduces himself as one. He is one, and this is the foundational truth from which we begin to understand the nature of God. Now, that is the foundation that we take as we enter into the New Testament. When we come to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew that introduces the New Testament, this is the foundational, centralizing truth of all Hebrew worship in that day and time. And so we can understand why people were challenged by the fact that Jesus was calling himself God, right? Because God is one. And he's the father of Abraham, the father of Isaac, and the father of Jacob. That's the way that the faith has come to us. Who are you to tell us that you are God? How do we know then that Jesus is God? Well, I want to provide what I'll call four critical points of New Testament revelation that show us the Trinity, that show us that Jesus is God and ultimately the Spirit is God too. But it demonstrates to us the eternal nature, not only of God the Father, but God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The first critical point we see is in the announcement of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1 verse 35, listen to what uh, the, the angel says when he comes to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see here, we have an explicit revelation of the three persons of our triune God. The narrative of Jesus' birth provides a distinct revelation in this way. As the angel appears to Mary, it says she was troubled at this. You know why she was troubled? Because her very life was coming to an end if what the angel just said to her came about. But the angel told her as it comforted her, don't you worry about this. Because the one that's doing it is the one that will take care of everything around its being done that the Holy Spirit would conceive within her, the Most High would overshadow her, guard, protect, comfort, and carry her through this, and the Son of God would be born from her. Friends, this statement is, uh, demonstrates for us the activity of the Trinity participating in Jesus' birth. From the beginning. The second critical point I want you to see in the New Testament, and what I'm doing here is I'm showing you how God progressively has revealed Himself from the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now He's revealing new aspects of His nature that we've not yet fully understood. It's at Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Listen to these verses. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again here, we have all three persons of the Trinity in one united act of revelation. 
and the Holy Spirit descends, the Father speaks audibly to identify Jesus as his son and to approve of his baptism. In other words, his identification with God, but also his movement forward in ministry in the earth. That's the second. The third point of critical New Testament revelation following along with the life of Jesus is Jesus' teachings. Now, the most uh, expansive uh, body of teaching that we have from Jesus on this is captured in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17. And I'm not going to read any of that for you today because that's going to be the passages that we unpack for the next two messages on the Trinity. But I, I want to say this simply about Jesus' teaching in John 13 to 17, that the central thrust of everything he says is that God is triune in his nature. Because he tells us what? He tells the people, I am God. I have been sent from the Father. If you believe in God, you'll believe in me. If you believe in me, you believe in God. He's saying we are one. He says this, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. I don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. And then when he prays in John chapter 17, what does he say? He said, thank you, Holy Father, that we are one. And then he goes on to pray that we would be one with them. In other words, be brought into the unity of his triune nature. So what Jesus is telling us is not trying to explain all the intricacies of this. That would be mind-blowing for sure. But he's teaching us from the presumption of the truth of the Trinity. And he's beckoning upon us to believe in what he is saying because of who he is. And, you know, we are confronted like that, by that just in the same way that the, the people of the Old Testament and of the Bible times were confronted by that. You don't believe, but here's the truth. Will you trust to believe? That's what Jesus is doing in his teaching. And then we see the fourth critical point of New Testament revelation that shows to us the Trinity at Jesus' ascension. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. It's called the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus is speaking. And he says this. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus not only introduces the oneness he has with God by affirming the great commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 6, but when he tells us to go and make disciples, that we are to bring new disciples into the church, into Christianity, by leading them to identify with one God who is three in person. That's what he's teaching us at the Great Commission. Jesus says that God is one in the Great Commandment. He told the Pharisee, you are right that the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He also teaches us this, that by the truth of God as he reveals himself, that's what determines who and how we worship him. We don't just get to figure out whatever we want to do and hope God gets happy with it. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Why? Well, I'm going to talk about that more next week. But I'll say this for now. The way you worship demonstrates what you believe about God more than it does about what you believe about what you're doing. Okay, enough for next week. 
And what he is saying to us here, friends, is the very key of the whole reason that the Council of Nicaea was held. You see, the Old Testament image of God is not something other than the New Testament image. It's not a whole separate kind of category. And it's not something that stands in contrast to. The Old Testament doesn't oppose the New Testament in the Scriptures. The God of the Old Testament isn't some kind of other than God than the God of the New Testament. He is revealing himself so that those who come to know him can know he is as he has always been and forevermore shall be. He is the one, he is the Lord, and he is God. And he's revealing this to us so we can understand how the early Christians of the 4th century in the 300s said, if we worship Jesus, isn't that idolatry? Because we're not worshiping the one God. And if we worship Jesus, how do we worship Jesus and remain true to the God who is one? That's the question. That's the situation that the doctrine of the Trinity addresses for us. And the answer is simple. As we've seen in the New Testament, the progressive revelation that of God that reveals to us He is one, He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three persons are fully God. And this, friends, forms our worship. Christians are commanded to love and to worship the oneness of God through His triune nature. There's one question that we need to explain and to understand that will help us deepen our understanding of God as we look at how he reveals himself throughout Scripture, but also throughout history in response to Scripture. As God has revealed himself, how do those encounters that real people have had with God reveal the nature of God? Now, we do this constantly. We've talked about how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. We've talked before about how God has revealed himself to the disciples in the upper room through Jesus Christ. And so we've done this. But this is the key for us to understand how God reveals himself in the scriptures and ultimately how we encounter that revelation today and why that matters for us so much. You see, reconciliation with the one true God is completed by his triune nature father son and holy spirit and that is the ultimate culminating answer to this question of how God has revealed himself so that we understand him more as we encounter him in our life every day so that brings me to the third question that probably most of you would be most interested in in this study. Why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? Why can't we just get on with life and not spend as much time on doctrine? Because, friends, what we understand about God determines how we live in light of his truth. And so I want to provide for you today three reasons that the Trinity is critical for every Christ follower in response to the revelation of God as triune. The first is this, God's revelation in the Trinity amplifies his greatness to blow our mind with glory. 
Yes, I want to be as radically practical in this as I can, but I am appealing to our understanding here and our intellect. Not intellect alone, as you'll see, but I want to appeal to us to understand the value of our study and the depth at which God impacts us. Glory in life, no matter what form it is, whether it's strength or power or beauty, whatever it may be, or or even great wisdom, glory is the single greatest determinant of the worthiness of worship. And at the end of all the theological writing and authors that I've read, in various forms and way, they all concluded this, that no one can fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. And in fact, that's the way God must have wanted it because that's what he didn't do is go to great lengths to explain it to us. Why? Because it would have literally blown our minds. But does that mean God doesn't reveal himself still? Absolutely not. Yet, the person who knows God knows this, that there remains a powerful alluring to know him more. That the fact of our encounters with God on a daily, weekly, and regular basis tell us this, that the more we get of him, the more we know of him, the more we want to know him. Encounters with God that lead us to worship do not leave us wanting for, for, for something we didn't get, but they leave us hungry, thirsty, for more of what we've been filled to overflowing with. And that's the very point I want to make here. For the explorer who knows of lands that are yet unknown, he wants to find a greater glory because of the glory he's found in those he's discovered. For the scientist who who bases his own research upon the glory that's already been discovered, and yet he knows that there's a disease that is yet uncured or a problem yet unresolved, or solved, he knows this, that the glory that has been revealed is the very foundation that propels him to the glory that is yet to be known. And so it is with the Christian life that all we know of God says to us, there is a glory that is yet unknown and it causes us to strive towards the knowing of this. Let me give you one illustration of this. Have you ever said this, I don't want to worship a God who lives in a box? Now, if you haven't been around church very long, that's a reference that says this, God in a box means we own God or we have the final word on God. And it's not really something someone has ever said, but it's often determinant of the way that we act about God. Like, we got this figured out. And maybe, maybe you've met someone that just had an answer for everything, you know, and, this, and they spoke for God when they gave it. And, 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 you know, quite frankly, there isn't anything about that that you want more from. Nobody walks away from a know-it-all and going, wow, I just wish I could hear a little more of what they know. <laughs> right? No, you don't do that. Why? Because you didn't want to know everything they shared with you. You couldn't shut them up. So often we say, I don't want to worship a God who's in a box. But when we come to worship, we are so comfortable with the confines that we have placed upon him. We are content to stay there and not let him speak to us in such a way that leads us from where we are to where he is drawing us and leading us. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity does for us, friends. It calls to us from our understanding to a God who is 
far beyond our understanding. To a God who is infinite in his glory and greatness. Who knows no bounds. Who knows no depths. Who knows no breadth that will ever encompass him. Because from first to last and everything in between, he is eternal. And he calls us to himself for a greater glory. To study him and to know him. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 16 to 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right there it is friends. Let me tell you friends I hope you walked in here with everything you know about God today. Because the one thing he wants to do is reveal himself in such a way that blows your mind. He's greater than anything that you have yet obtained and reached in your knowledge of him. He is more than you can comprehend if you will dare to trust him as he reveals himself to you. Mind-blowing. The second reason is heart-strengthening. That God's revelation in the Trinity magnifies his work to strengthen our heart with love for faith. To obey. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity, I believe, really captures the essence of the mystery of God, his transcendence and his otherness from us. And that's what makes him great in glory and worthy of glory. The more you know God, the stronger the desire of your heart to seek him more. Not only for understanding, as we just talked about, but rather for greater intimacy with him you see friends as glory begets glory and as love begets greater love so glory or excuse me so intimacy with God begets greater intimacy with God the more you know our triune God in increasing manner and increasing measure the greater your trust of him will grow in all ways. Listen to this prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 17 and just hear if you're not sensing Paul saying move from glory to greater glory, love to greater love, intimacy to greater intimacy. Paul says for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You hear that? He's praying to the Father for you that the power of the spirit would be unleashed within you. And when it is, here's what comes to full fruition in your life. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you will live, he goes on to say, rooted and grounded in a love that is so secure it cannot be shaken in this world. That's power of the heart that comes only from Jesus Christ through the gospel. Faith dwells within the Christian by the active work of the triune God anchoring us in his love. The third reason is this. God's revelation in the Trinity enlarges our life in relationship with God. It enlarges our life in relationship with God. The Trinity brings our understanding of God to bear on the whole of our life. It's not just something we do on Sunday, but when we when our feet hit the floor from the bed in the morning, it's about God. And when our head lays down on the pillow at night, why? Because it's about God. 
we rest because of what we know of Him. And we work because of what we know of Him. We labor because of what we know of Him. And recreate because of what we know of Him. And we love because of what we know of God. This is how it enlarges our life. By His triune nature at work, God saves us and He shapes our life in His image by His work for His glory. We've already read that in 2 Corinthians, as Paul said well ago, being transformed from one degree of glory to the other in the likeness of Jesus And so the Trinity provides for us a practical guide to our daily relationship with God. Listen to this progression. I want to ask you to just close your eyes so that you can sharpen your ears to hear this. And how this progression with God works by His triune nature. We understand how God relates within His triune nature and how He relates to us. The more you know God, the more you see Him in your everyday life. And the more you see Him every day, the more you recognize His love for you by the involvement He has with you. And the more you live with the awareness of God's involvement and presence in your life, the more you begin to marvel at Him. And the more you marvel at God every day, the more you see that not only in the magnificent, but even in the mundane activity of life, you are in your life aligned with the eternal purposes of God. And the more your life is centered on God's eternal purposes, the more active he is in the everyday moments and the events of history. Now look back at me. Isn't that what you want to live every day of your life? With a growing and an increasing, with a compounding that is compelling recognition that God is with us. He is for us in our life. That's why this study is so essential. God reveals His triune nature that we might know the glory of His oneness in communion with Him.